All right, we have been in this incredible book called the book of First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, a guy who hung out with Jesus for three and a half years and had his ups and downs, and now he's beginning to shepherd and pastor people that are going to go through real hard times. And so we're, we're in a very fascinating verse right now. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Let me read it for you. The end of all things is at hand. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, how in the world do we get this verse? So I outlined this book months ago, chose it months ago. And this is the verse that we're at when we have, I would say, in my lifetime, the hardest week in my lifetime in Southern Oregon, where we've had fires, but never fires that have ripped through major populated areas and burn out cities, right? So it's like, what in the world? I almost wanna play that song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. You're saying, Matt, I don't feel fine. In fact, this whole end of the world thing freaks me out. When I read verses like this, or right now people are quoting to me these Bible verses and saying it's the end of the world. They're quoting Revelation 8, 7, where the angel sounds a trumpet and a third of the earth is burned up. Is that what we're seeing right now? Are we in Revelation 8, verse 7? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. The first time I was exposed to this prophecy update about the end of the world, I was freaked out. So I happened to be 23 years old, working as an engineer, and I had a job at a defense site, a DOD site out on the East Coast. It was on the Savannah River. It's where they make tritium, which is a component used in nuclear weapons. And so for me to even go there, I had to go through an FBI interview and background checks and all this stuff. So I fly in there on a Sunday morning. I get in, I'm 23. I go up to the counter to get my rental car. It's a small airport. And the lady's like, son, you do not look like you're over 14. Do you have a driver's license? I said, yes, I do. So I gave her my driver's license and she's like, type something in her computer and says, Oh, I'm sorry, son. We only rent cars to people 24 and older. We can't rent you a car. I'm like, what? Is there another rental car company here? We're the only one. So not only did I look 14, I felt 14 because I had to call my client on the phone and say, can you come pick me up at the airport? I felt like I was in junior high, like, meep, meep. Hey, mom, my ride's here. I can go. Well, he was two and a half hours away. So I'm now in this airport. I've got two and a half hours to spare. And I had this book someone had told me I should read. The book was by Hal Lindsey. It's called The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was written in the 70s. And it was this idea that you could find in the Bible, like, look, these are our times right now. And it's the end of the world. So I'm like, well, might as well read this book. So I sat there and I'm reading The Late Great Planet Earth in this 
little airport, ready to go to a nuclear site, and it's just telling me the end of the world. And like, I remember the hair on the back of my neck was standing up. And I'm like, I think the rental lady is the Antichrist. I gotta go, I gotta get out of here, I gotta go home, right? It freaked me out, like fully I can understand that. Just, ah! So Peter here, he gives his own prophecy update. So before we listen to so-and-so or whoever it might be that you love, they give their prophecy updates, maybe we should take an author of scripture and listen to what he has to say when he's talking about the end of the world. It might be super beneficial to listen to him, okay? So Peter says, it's the end of the world. It's here. The next question is, what do we do? Do we all move to Idaho? Do we dig concrete bunkers and store a bunch of food and store a bunch of guns and get a bunch of ammo and gold and make sure and say bye-bye to your social security number because it's half of the mark of the beast, right? And do not get a vaccine because that's the other half of the mark of the beast. And cover your house in aluminum foil to make sure that they can't see in, right? Freak all your neighbors out. Buy 500 pounds of wheat berries. By the way, that's what my family did when I was little. So my, my mom, when we were little, we, we went to a church that had a different view of prophecy and said that we were in the tribulation, so you better store up food. And so she bought 500 pounds of wheat berries, but they were only good for seven years. So at about year five, my, my mom is very, very frugal. She's like, yeah, I don't think it's coming. We're eating these. So we ate 500 pounds of wheat berries. Our family referred to that as the great wheat berry tribulation period, right? It was miserable. I would rather die than eat wheat berries, right? Just take me home. I'm not doing this. So, right? Is that what we do? Is that how we're supposed to live in this time? No, right? No. Look what Peter does. He doesn't go talk about Nero. He doesn't grab a newspaper and say, look at what's happening in the news. He doesn't grab a text from Ezekiel and say, hey, look, look, wars. Those might be true. That's not what Peter does. Peter doesn't do any of that because this is the book of hope. And this book of hope, he does this. Remember, this is about suffering. If you were here last Sunday, this was about suffering. In the context, the end of the world, it's about suffering. Because when you suffer, it's like you become very, very sensitive to things ending. And that's, I think, why right now there is this tension about the end of the world, because that's what happens when we see suffering. You begin to think, maybe, maybe this is the end. But this book, it's about hope. In the midst of suffering or tribulation or end of the world, this book is all about hope. So Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. Time out, Matt. Peter wrote that 2,000 years ago. He said the end of the world, right? Yes, he did. Well, the end of the world hasn't come. It's been 2,000 years. Was Peter wrong? No. Because what the Bible does is it says, no matter when you live, be ready. That the king could come back at any time. Right? So I'll give you a hypothetical situation. 
Let's say hypothetically, I'm in my car and I have the kids in there and we're waiting for my wife to come to the car. And so my kids are like, dad, can we get out? Can we go do something? I'm tired of waiting in the car. And so I say, hypothetically, no, because mom could be here in a minute. She could be here at any minute. So we're gonna wait in the car for her, right? So let's say it takes her longer than a minute. Hypothetically, it takes her 10 minutes to get into the car. And now we're gonna be late, hypothetically. Am I wrong in saying she could be there in a minute or at any time? No, because she could have been. It just took her 10 minutes. So Peter's the same thing. Listen, the king can come back whenever he wants. The, the end, the last days, we're in them. Jesus can come back whenever he wants. So you and I stay in the car and be ready. And this is what he's gonna say. Here's how you do it. Here's how you begin to live this thing out, staying in the car. He's gonna give us how. But before I do that, here's what I wanna help you. Because if you have studied the Bible at all, not everybody is late great planet Earth end times. In fact, there are four major ways when people, smart people, read the Bible that they say, this is how we think the end will happen, okay? So there are four major ones. I'm gonna give them to you really quick. Number one, preterists. A preterist says this, all Bible prophecy is in the past. It's all been fulfilled pretty much by AD 70. And there's one event left, at least partial preterist. There's one event left, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Preterist. Number two, historists. Historists are a group that are based on this mystic from the 12th century. His name is Jehoiakim of Fior, and he divided the Bible up into three ages. The age of God, the law, the age of Jesus, grace, and the age of the spirit. And according to him, the world was supposed to end in 1843. So a group actually picked this up. They're called the Millerites in America. And they believed the end was 1843. And so when their date was there, everybody, here's what they were told to do. Take your bathtub out of your house, put it in a field and sit in your bathtub and wait for Jesus to come back. So there was a lot of people sitting in bathtubs waiting for Jesus to come back and it didn't happen. Well, the Millerites disappeared, but out of them came the Seventh-day Adventists. So to this day, Seventh-day Adventists are historists. They, they kind of believe in that. Um, they believe we're actually in Revelation 16. But even historists say this, the next thing we're supposed to look for, the return of Jesus, right? There's a third group. These are the futurists. So futurists are your... Um, they believe a lot of Bible prophecy is to come in the future. So this is the late great planet Earth. This is um, Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series. This is uh, Calvary chapels. These are the guys doing the prophecy updates. This is the end of the world, right? That's that group. Um, progressive dispensationalists kind of fit in this category as well. So futurists, though, they believe this. The next event, the rapture or Jesus coming back for the church, right? So um, there's, oh, excuse me, there's idealists. I skipped over them. The idealists say there's no time, just truce. That there, when you look at prophecy, prophecy, there's no time to them. You just learn ageless truths for them. But idealists say the next event 
is a return of Jesus. So, interesting to me. There is a fifth group, they're a subcategory. They're the MHists, the Matt Heverlyists, and here's what they believe. <laughs> uh, Jesus is coming back, and I just don't know when. And so I quit the planning committee, and I joined the welcoming committee, and when Jesus comes back, it's gonna be the right time, and I wanna be found when he comes back doing what I'm supposed to be doing, faithfully carrying it out, right? So it doesn't matter to me when he's coming back. I'm gonna be faithfully carrying out what he did. So Martin Luther was asked once, if Jesus was to come back today, what would you do? And his answer was simple. He said, I would finish my gardening. Why? Because he had prayed in the morning, God, what should I do? Well, do your gardening. Well, he's gonna do that whether Jesus comes back or not. He's gonna be found faithfully doing what he should be doing, all right? So a, a number of years ago, I had to study through all this stuff. And, and what I kept noticing was this, like all these major systems, there's a couple minor ones, all these major systems, they're all looking for one thing, Jesus. Some of them call it a rapture, others call it a second coming. And I just thought, I'm not gonna debate that. If we're all looking for Jesus, why are we arguing about a second coming or a rapture? We're both looking for Jesus. So now, no matter who I talk to, the rapture folks or the second coming folks, I just say this, I cannot wait for the return of the king. And it could be today, but I don't know. But I'm gonna be faithfully found doing what God has me to do. Well, what would God have us to do? This is where Peter comes in. So Peter doesn't go to newspapers, doesn't say this, doesn't say build a bunker. Peter says, all right, in the light of the end times, here's what we're supposed to do. Check this out. Therefore, based on this, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Because the end is here, make sure your mind is sober and make sure you live in self-control. I think we have a danger today in our culture that we start getting clouded with all this kind of stuff, right? Anxiety, end times, fires everywhere. And, and this anxiety just makes us fearful and weirded out and, and, and not clear thinking. We're not to be that. I think even if we didn't have all this stuff, there's so much pressure on us today with this cycle, this, just the speed of life now, right? Like everything that we have to do, I've got to go to work. I need to fill up the tank in the car. I need to rotate the tires. I need to change the oil. I need to clean. I need to wash the clothes. I need to wash the socks. I need to wash my hair. I need to wash the dog. I need to wash the car. I need to go get groceries. I need to pick up the kids. I need to take the kids here, right? I need to... Um, check on my dogs. I need to check on my kids. I need to check my email. I need to check my text. I need to check Facebook. I need to check. It's just unbelievable, right? I need to pluck my eyebrows. I need to pluck my ears. I need to pluck my nose. I feel like a chicken. Pluck, 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 pluck. It's insanity now, right? And what happens is you can't for a moment step back and really say, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Clear-minded, thoughtful, prayerful. And often it takes a funeral or a wedding or a birth or a disaster 
for us to actually slow down and to be clear-minded and thoughtful and get our priorities straight, which is a tragedy. I think the best thing is every morning you wake up and you take some time and you let scripture speak to you. And you say, thinking about yesterday, Jesus, how'd I do with yesterday? Help me to do what I'm supposed to do today. Help me to live in the light of your return today, to be about your business today. That's clear-minded. That's self-controlled. I think that's the way, right? So number one, Peter says, don't build bunkers, don't do that. Instead, be sober, be clear-minded, and here's why. Number two, do it for your prayers, for the sake of your prayers. Like the reason why you need to be clear-minded and you need to be sober and self-controlled is so that you can pray. So the King James Version, that's the version I cut my teeth on. I still love it. It says this here. It uses this little phrase here. It says, be watchful unto prayer. Now that's a theme in scripture. So if you wanna know God's highlighter, what's really important to God, look what God repeats in his word. And being watchful unto prayer is one of those repetitions. Matthew 26, Mark 13, Luke 21, Ephesians 6, Colossians 4. Over and over, it's watch unto prayer. Now, what does that mean? I think there's a spiritual dimension to this, that when we are prayerful, we become awareful that those two go hand in hand. Somehow, when, when I'm alert, when, when my mind's not all cluttered and I'm, and I'm sober-minded and I'm thinking correctly and I start in this attitude of prayer, what happens is I become more aware of things. It's like when you buy a car, what happens? You see that car everywhere. It's always, they've always been there, but all of a sudden, everybody else has a gray Honda Accord. Wow, who'd have thunk it? Well, you just became aware of something that it changes you and changes the way you live your life. So I remember a couple of years ago, I read this excerpt from this book called Frogs into Princesses. And they talked about this new discovery that you can tell if somebody's lying. Perhaps you read this. That if you're talking to somebody and they lie, if they're right-handed, if they're left-handed, it's opposite. If they're right-handed, their eyes will look left really quick. They'll just dart to the left and come back. You can't even control it. In fact, they have these ways to, to actually tell what kind of lie you're telling. If you look left and up, it's an image you're lying about. If you look left and even, it's a spoken thing you're talking about. And if you look left and down, it's a conversation that you're, you had that you're lying about, right? So that just changed everything, especially with my kids. I'd be like, kids, son, daughter, did you take those cookies? And they'd like just close their eyes. What? I didn't take it, right? Because I had a secret. It made me aware of something. Prayer, watching unto prayer, it's like that. It's like this theme in scripture that God gives you this insight and this pulse on reality. When? When you're clear-minded, when you're self-controlled, and when you're watching unto prayer. When, when you're going around the world, life, and you're saying, I'm looking for, I'm looking for opportunities to pray. Do we do that? Or do we instead watch to grumble or watch 
to complain. That when we see something, entertainment or homeless problem or internet or social media, do we, do we think about as our first thing, I should pray for that situation? Or is our first inclination to complain about that situation? I think believers, if we want to be incited and full of his spirit and able to see through the cloud and the craziness, if we're those that say, no, God showed me this today so I could pray. And something happens to you, you become a changed kind of person that God reveals more to you. And I think there's actually an Old Testament picture of this. It's when David, King David, is gathering an army together. And every tribe is like sending these massive crews, 73,000 from this tribe and 50,000 from this tribe. And then it's just like a stark contrast. It said the tribe of Issachar sent 200 people. But this, it goes on, it has this little byline because they were men who understood their times and knew what the people should do. Oh, we need 200 men and 200 women in Grant's past that understand our times, that the end is near, that are sober, clear-minded, watchful under prayer. Man, we change Grant's past then. You become aware. You become this, this conduit, not complaining. You become a conduit of change. So that's what Peter's saying. In light of the end, don't freak out. Don't do that. Don't be anxious. Clear-minded, sober, so you can pray. Oh, this week, when you go about your week, can I challenge you to watch under prayer? That everything you see that stirs your heart, that causes you to think, that makes you a little bit maybe fearful, instead take that instantly and say, I've been made aware of this, to pray. And see, see if God doesn't begin to reveal things to you. You're in this just, you become a man, a woman of Issachar, who understand the times and you know what to do. It's brilliant, all right? But I love Peter, because he's always practical. Like prayer, yes, that's spiritual, but it's, he doesn't leave it there. He also says, you gotta do something too. Check this out, number three. Above all, end times, it's coming. Above all, build a bunker, <laughs> buy guns, buy ammo, run away. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Why does it say keep loving? Because people are hard. <laughs> keep loving. Well, Matt, how do you love hard people? He tells us. You cover their sins. That's how you do it. I think personally, when Peter talks about this, he's referring to Noah because he talked about Noah in chapter three, if you remember back there. And here's the story of Noah. Perhaps you know it. Noah, really difficult times, kind of end of the world situation, flood, all that kind of stuff, he hears from God. He's probably watchful and prayerful. He gets revelation from God. He preaches righteousness. He builds a boat and saves humanity. But when he gets off the boat in chapter nine, he plants a vineyard, makes some wine from the grapes, and one day he gets drunk and he's naked. And nakedness in the Bible is more than just missing your clothing. It's shameful. It's exposure. It has all that in it. And so one of his sons, he's got three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham sees him there naked 
And Ham does this. He goes over and tells everybody else, dude, dad, Noah's naked. Come check it out. When I read that, I thought, why would a son do that? Usually dads, especially a dad like Noah would be a hero. Like my dad against everyone else said a flood was coming. And then he did something. He built a boat. Like he literally, he built this giant boat. He saved animals. He saved us. He's my hero. Maybe, maybe because this happened to him. Maybe his dad was his hero. But then when he saw his dad drunk and naked, it broke something in him. That sometimes we put people on these pedestals. We make them our heroes. And then when we find out they're actually human, the, the pendulum sweeps the whole other way and we despise them. It's a danger. Be careful of that. I think that may have happened to Ham. Like, oh, he's ordinary. He's broken. He's a drunk. Oh, and he exposes them. But the two other sons, Shem and Japheth, when they hear this, it says they took a blanket and they put it on their shoulders and they walked backwards over their dad and they slowly covered him not to look at his nakedness. They covered their dad's failing their dad's sins. We need a whole bunch, a whole bunch of Shem and Japheth. We need Edgewater Christian Fellowship to be a, a community that doesn't expose people, doesn't talk about people's sins, doesn't let other people know about their sins. A whole group of Edgewater people that are saying, no, I'm gonna keep loving people. I'm gonna cover their sins. I'm not gonna tell people about this. I'm not gonna spread this stuff about them. I'm gonna speak positively about them. In fact, when other people are talking negatively about this person, I'm gonna make sure and do the opposite and say, oh, but you don't know. They also did this, covering sins. The end is near. So how do you live? You love. You love by covering them. You know why? Because it's what Jesus has done for us. Read Isaiah 61, verse 10. We've blown it. We've made mistakes. We're worse than Noah. And it says that he robes us in his righteousness. It's the prodigal son who one day wakes up and he's in a pigsty, filthy, stinking pigsty, and says, I'm going home. And when he goes home, he's expecting to be a slave, but the father comes out and puts a brand new robe on him, covers all that pigsty stuff, probably gave him some Old Spice as well. That's what we're supposed to be. The same kind of people. Yeah, the end is coming. So how do you do it? Man, you love earnestly. You cover people up. That's what you do. And secondly, here's how you love. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Brilliant. I don't need to preach on this. I have watched this in action this week. It is unbelievable, right? So we have this privilege, this honor to have this facility that now is being used. And here's what's amazing. We have had to tell you guys, stop. There's too much, too many volunteers, too, many, too much giving. Like we said, hey, we need some sleeping bags and some, some uh, sleeping mats. And from like, the morning until nine o'clock at night, I was unloading cars full of sleeping bags and cots. We would make 
REI jealous right now. Like we've got more than enough. It's amazing. Stop. And then it's, hey, we need some stuff for the first responders. And it was, ah, we can't take anymore. Just, you, it's unbelievable. And no one was grumbling about it. Like I'd be like, thank you so much for helping. And every person was, no, thank you for giving us an opportunity. We are so glad to do this. It reminds me of Moses with the tabernacle. where He just said, ah, too much. How brilliant is that? Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're doing this. We have a list of people that have just said, my home is open. Bring people to my house. Put them there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are living this out, right? And then here's what he also says. Keep doing. Look at verse 11. 10, excuse me. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. End times, they're coming. It's here. So what do we do? Freak out, build bunkers, get newspapers, build compounds. That can sometimes be it. Like the, the, the prophecy update thing can sometimes cause people to almost like isolate themselves and walk away from culture. Like, let it go to hell in a handbasket. That's not what Peter says to do. He says, because of this, because of the end times, even more importantly, use the gifts God has given to you. The Bible makes it clear that every single person that believes in Jesus Christ is given a spiritual gift, equipped in some kind of way, unique. And not only that, Ephesians 2.10 says, all of us have these good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. With our experience, with our connections, with our brains, with our style, all that, God just tailor fit these things that were to walk in them. We can do it better than anyone else because God's made it for us. It says, bloom where you're planted. And I love that it says, speak, and you speak the oracles of God. And serve both, hand in hand. They're speaking stuff you should do, and they're serving stuff you should do. Sometimes churches can get into what I call the attractional church. I just call them hair and face churches where it's just all speaking, but there's really no doing. It always grieves me. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, in Matthew, he comes on the scene, preaches the most incredible message ever. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It is brilliant, 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 brilliant. I can read that over and over and over. Every time I read it, I am ministered to in some new way. It's, it's as deep as it gets, Sermon on the Mount. Ends in chapter seven, immediately in chapter eight, Jesus leaves there and heals a leper. And then he just goes about doing good works. It's, it's the model of Jesus. Not just speaking, as important as that is, it's the other hand, the other foot that walks the gospel for, forward. It's also serving practically. We need both of them. If not, we become like the guy at the gym that only works out his pecs and his guns. Right? He's an inverted pair with toothpicks sticking out of him. And like, bro, you're going to break a hip. You got all that weight up there and you got nothing down below. Like jog, go, do a squat for crying out loud. So at Edgewater, we have four pillars that we try to say, this models this well. Corporate worship is this. Normally you guys are here. This is a unique Sunday uh, where we get together. 
Um, number two, it's celebration. We just think no one has it better than us. Nobody has it better than us. We are kids of the king. Community groups, where we get a cover sins, show hospitality, use our gifts. And then fourthly, it's mission. That we're to be about mission. Safe families here in Grants Pass. Home bridging, you know, getting people into homes. Uh, that's, you know, mission. In, in Africa with Pastor Douglas and the fish farm the Folkstads did and, and down in Mexico with the um, mission down there to handicap orphans, like that's it. You better have mission as well. Both of those, speaking and serving. And then he says one last thing. All of this is for this purpose, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. All this is to bring glory to Jesus. And I'll tell you what, this week, the church, our church, has brought glory to Jesus. That we're walking out this end times, whatever that means. I don't know if it's years from now, days from now, tomorrow, today, I don't know when it is. I don't know, right? I know this, my end times are coming. My life is halfway over. My end times are coming. And I'm so proud of the way that we have walked out this time. Like it just, glory to Jesus has happened. Like how cool would it be if Jesus returned today and found his house, this place, full of vacuees? How cool would that be? Or if he comes to your house and you've got evacuees, how cool would that be? Because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in his name for his glory. And you guys are awesome. You have made Jesus look beautiful to our community. And I'm so thankful for that. So the end times... Fully, we're in them. Been in them for 2,000 years. When's Jesus coming back? Maybe today. Live like it's today. That's the message of scripture. Keep loving. Keep serving. Keep speaking. Keep bringing glory to Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to do today. And so, Father, today, we thank you that the king is gonna return for us. That the kingdom will be established in finality. There will be no more sin and there will be no more death and there will be no more disasters. That things will be made right. And so we look forward to that day. We have anticipation for that. And we pray that today we'd be found faithful to live out like Peter tells us to. Sober-minded, self-controlled, prayerful, loving, covering people in their multitude of sins, showing hospitality without grumbling, speaking your word and serving this community. And we do this for your glory. So empower us in that, Lord. May you be glorified in every life that claims you as king, we pray. We continue to pray for our community. We pray for miracles. We pray for your spirit to be moving. We pray that you would take what the enemy wants to use for evil and that you would turn it for good. And we pray this because you are a good God.
Amen.